You're listening to episode number 63 of The Green Elephant. In our last episode, we shared a potent weapon in the fight against climate change. Research by Harvard professor Erica Chenoweth and colleague Maria Steffen showed that nonviolent, peaceful protests was much more effective at achieving major social and political change than violent resistance. It's a surprisingly small portion of the population that will guarantee a successful campaign, just 3.5%. That sounds like a small number, but in absolute terms, it's really an impressive quantity of people. And, if done right, that number will grow to achieve a critical mass of supporters to make the changes we need happen quickly. The amazing thing is, within my lifetime, we had a massive protest turnout concerning environmental issues and it exceeded everybody's expectations about how spectacularly successful it was. That's why I've been calling this the Great Peaceful 3.5% Nonviolent Climate Solution. For context, if you haven't, go and listen to podcast episode number 62. While we're on the subject of environmental solutions, on the Green Elephant webpage, we have listed hundreds of eco-activities from donating, volunteering, finding climate action groups in your community, to running for elected office yourself. You will find it on the top bar of the webpage, entitled, A Call to Act. In this section, we're going to address which group of people is most responsible for heating up our planet and the biodiversity collapse. Spoiler alert, it's the rich. I am a history teacher, so I thought it would be instructive to get a brief perspective of the history of wealth in the past, or should I say, the history of poverty. When you only consider what the world looks like during our lifetime, it's easy to think of the planet as static. The richer parts of the world here, the poorer regions there. It's misleading to think that it was always like that and that it will always be like that. If you take a longer view, it becomes very clear that the world is not static at all. The countries that are rich today were very poor just a few generations ago. In fact, throughout all of human history and up until recently, virtually everyone was poor. For most of history, the bulk of humanity were subsistence farmers who lived largely from their own food production. Throughout human history, there were wealthy people, usually pharaohs, kings, sultans, and their families and royal courts. But this was a minuscule fraction of the population. I have included a fascinating chart on the elephant webpage. The chart graphically explains, starting about 200 years ago, in 1820, only a tiny elite enjoyed higher standards of living, while the vast majority of people lived in conditions that we would call extreme poverty today. Since then, the share of extremely poor people fell continuously. More and more world regions industrialized and thereby increased productivity, which made it possible to lift more people out of poverty. 
In 1950, the year I was born, two-thirds of the world were living in extreme poverty. In 1980, it was still 42 percent. In 2015, the last year for which we currently have data, the share of the world population in extreme poverty has fallen below 10 percent. This has been a staggering achievement and maybe the biggest achievement of all in the last two centuries. It is particularly remarkable because in a time of unprecedented population growth, our world managed to give more prosperity to more people and to continuously lift more people out of the worst poverty. In humanity's long history, rapid economic growth is a very new phenomenon. Before the Industrial Revolution, the total output of the economy did not change rapidly over time. The size of the pie remained largely unchanged from decade to decade. Almost all of this economic triumph happened because of fossil fuels, which powered the Industrial Revolution and increased productivity multiple fold. Access to these ancient forms of energy has sustained economic growth and allowed the material living conditions of a population to increase over several generations. This was not achieved until a few decades ago, in my lifetime. Increasingly, productivity was important because it made vital goods and services less scarce. More food, better clothing, and less cramped housing. Prosperity has raised the standard of living for billions of people. We have come to expect that each generation would be better off than the previous one. You would do better than your parents. In researching this topic, it is clear that this affluence came because of human ingenuity. What I never hear mention is that our great global prosperity came at the cost of the environment. In the early years, our population was small. However, over time, as our technology grew, so did our population and wealth. Which segues into who are the people having the biggest impact on the environment today? I will tell you, it's the stinking rich. As we just heard, very few people were considered extremely rich throughout history. Today, the super rich are comparatively small in number, but their environmental impact is enormous. It's not just the super rich, but a broader swath of wealthy people who also emit much of the world's carbon. So, what constitutes being rich? When we think of the rich, we might think of millionaires and billionaires with private jets and multiple mansions. However, rich is a relative term, depending on which country you live in and a variety of other factors. The mega-rich individual in the 0.1% has a net worth of $30 million or more. Globally, there are over 500,000 individuals in this elevated status. In the U.S., to be in the top 1%, you need approximately $4 million. More than 19 million Americans qualify. And here, stateside, if you want to be in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the country, $200,000 in the bank would do it. It's important to remember, it's not just the rich countries imperiling the planet. 
it's the mega-rich. The world's wealthiest people make a huge contribution to climate change through their luxury pollution and carbon-hungry activities. The richest people on the planet, representing a small sliver of the total population, are emitting carbon dioxide at a rate that imperils hope of keeping global heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius. The rich are different from you and me. Sure, they have more money, but they also spew out a lot more carbon than you or me. A lot more. The SUVs that ferry around presidents, business leaders, and celebrities, and increasingly middle-class families and cities, have also become a status symbol despite their environmental impact. SUVs made up 42% of global car sales in the last year. And here's a gloomy fact. The increase in people buying SUVs last year effectively canceled out the climate gains of electric cars. Bigger homes are another consumption hotspot. Housing choices signify prestige and social status. In Europe, nearly 11% of emissions from housing came from the top 1% of admitters who own large and often multiple homes. Then we have the thing that is hands down one of the greatest status symbols and greatest per capita contributors to carbon emissions, flying. From the business elite crisscrossing the globe to the celebrities who have made travel part of their personal brand, their behavior has helped make a high carbon lifestyle aspirational and desirable. Ironically, the battle lines have been drawn on one side by the wealthiest people on earth and on the other by a Swedish teenager. Greta Thunberg put a spotlight on personal accountability. Flying, one of the most carbon-intensive forms of consumption, became a symbol of this new accountability. As soon as you fly, you belong to a global elite. More than 90% of people have never flown, and just 1% of the world's population is responsible for 50% of admissions from flying. In her home country, Thunberg's activism helped inspire FlyScam, the Swedish word for flight shame, a concept which led people to question how much they should be flying. This movement was linked to a 4% drop in the number of people flying from Sweden's airports last year, which was a rare fall at a time when global passenger numbers are increasing dramatically. What's worse than flying on a private jet? Flying on a private supersonic jet these are being marketed to the ultra-rich and have the potential to be a climate disaster. These hopped-up planes burn five to seven times more fuel than a normal aircraft and break carbon dioxide emission limits for aircraft by 70%. For a price many wealthy people are willing to pay, it will shave a few hours off their trans-oceanic flight times. But wait, it gets even worse we now have the billionaire space race. In the few minutes that Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk rockets are in the air, they admit 75 tons of carbon per person. That is less than an individual from the bottom billion will admit in their entire lifetime.
all of this affluenza has been prompting fresh calls for government action to rein in luxury pollution and combat the intertwined crisis of inequality and climate change. And there's good reason for that. Considering the wealthiest 1% of people on Earth were responsible for more than double the number of greenhouse gas emissions of the poorest 50%. That means to comply with the Paris Agreement, the ultra-rich would have to decrease their greenhouse gas emitting behaviors by a factor of 30. Personal consumption is a thorny topic to address. It can quickly spiral into a well-worn debate about whether tackling climate change hinges on individual actions or systematic changes from governments and corporations. This is a false dichotomy. Lifestyles don't exist in a vacuum. Our standards of living are shaped by context. But without addressing the lifestyles of the wealthiest and most polluting in our societies and the power they hold, we won't be able to address climate change. The affluent citizens of the world are responsible for most environmental impacts and are central to any future prospect of having a livable planet. Not surprisingly, rich people don't just have bigger bank balances and more lavish lifestyles than the rest of us, they also spew much greater amounts of greenhouse gases. The more stuff you own, the more you travel, the more fossil fuels are burned and the more greenhouse gases are admitted into the atmosphere. Jetting around, buying luxury goods, keeping mansions warm, and driving supercars, they all have an enormous carbon footprint. So the obvious question is, how are we going to fix this? This is a difficult topic to discuss because, well, we all want to be rich. Well, maybe not all, but who hasn't fantasized about winning the lottery or hitting a big jackpot in Vegas? So there lies the problem. We idolize the rich. We covet their lifestyle. We want to be them so bad that we ignore the harm they do. However, there are some circumstances where the well-to-do could rapidly move us along in cleaning up our environment. Here are some voluntary ways rich people could help save the planet from climate change. They could spend wisely. Rich people have more flexibility to make changes. The buying decisions of the rich mean much more in the fight against climate change than those of most people. Regarding their own lifestyle choices, the rich can change a lot. For instance, putting solar panels on the roofs of their houses. They can also afford electric cars. A high-income consumer likely has access and can afford more climate-friendly products. High-income cities and high-income individuals also have the resources to trial new products, services, and solutions they have the capacity to create a market for more sustainable goods. As well as choosing what to spend money on, rich people can choose what industries to invest in or not invest in. Many billionaires have tens of trillions of dollars invested in fossil fuels. But there is a trend of wealthy investors selling their shares in climate-harming industries known as divestment. 
If you don't invest in coal, if you don't invest in oil and gas, also in some car companies that produce normal cars or aviation, you have a large and direct impact on financial flows. With divestment, a little can go a long way. If the minority of wealthy investors divest, other smaller investors will not invest in those fossil fuel assets because they will be afraid of losing money, even if they have no environmental concerns. Wealth means power. Wealthy people are not just economic decision makers. They can have political influence too. They can fund political parties and campaigns and have access to lawmakers. Rich people could use their political power to instigate positive changes to climate policy. After all, they are the people with the highest emissions and they have the highest capacity to change something. There's so much research about the poor, the impact of climate change on the poor, sustainability development goals, and so on. But when it comes to action and sustainability and transformation, the poor cannot do anything because they are too busy surviving. But the educated, the rich, and the super rich, it's a completely different case. They have the money and the resources to act, and they also have the social connections and networks. Another way the wealthy can be enormously influential is to support climate research. A few years ago, Microsoft founder Bill Gates committed $2 billion of his fortune to fund research and development into clean energy. Recently, a group of scientists wrote to 100 wealthy charities and families to ask for an extraordinary increase in funding for environmental and climate-related issues. In their petition, they said, quote, we implore you to urgently consider significant investment to prevent further ecological collapse, whether through your personal investments or your philanthropy, the letter said. The super-rich also have an influence on other people's carpet emissions as high-profile role models. High status in our societies remains associated with high material wealth. For many, it's an aspiration to become like the very wealthy and you can imitate the lifestyles of people who you want to be like. The bottom line is, we as a society have to search for new ways of leading rich lives that are independent of material wealth. A person's carbon footprint is better revealed by their income than by their environmental beliefs. We must redefine wealth in our societies so that living a good life is possible without high greenhouse gas emissions. The poster boy for this kind of affluent activism is actor Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes, he has been criticized for flying private jets and other glamorous lifestyle actions, but he is one of the few high-profile Hollywood actors that has been passionately outspoken about his beliefs. Not only does he speak about it regularly, but he has also funded climate awareness films and is one of the thousands of wealthy investors who have pledged to divest from fossil fuels. Of course, as with most people, not all well-off individuals are that concerned or even actively using their great wealth to fight for any climate progress. Climate change is becoming less a battle of nations than a battle of rich versus poor. 
The fight to protect the planet is shifting in ways that could soon exacerbate conflicts within countries, particularly between social classes, or to put it bluntly, between the rich and the rest. We just described the carrot. Now, here's how we could use the stick. And this is not just for the fabulously flush. We could introduce targeted taxes on unsustainable conduct, such as luxury-related consumption that drives carbon emissions, such as frequent or business class flights or gas-guzzling large vehicles or overconsumption of meat should be taxed at a higher rate for the carbon consumption. This could help shift people to low-carbon behaviors more quickly, especially if there's a direct link between punishing polluting behavior and investments that benefit many. The money from carbon taxes should be directed to help poor communities that need social support programs and also toward those poor who are especially vulnerable to increasingly frequent and severe natural disasters. For example, proceeds from a frequent flyer tax could be invested into a cheaper or even free public transport system, and money from a mansion tax could be put towards insulating homes, bringing down levels of fuel poverty. The problem, though, is the rich can simply absorb these costs and continue as before. For the really rich, no normal level of carbon-linked tax will be a deterrent. They can swallow frequent flyer supplements, levies on big cars, and surcharges on household energy bills. Governments may have to go beyond tax policies into imposing limits on activities. For example, on the use of private jets. The recent climate conference in Glasgow exposed an ugly truth. Many global leaders and countless titans of industry showed up by private or chartered aircraft. The all-time shameless display was the host of the conference, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson, actually took off on a private jet in the middle of the conference to go to a dinner in London with a climate denier. The hypocrisy on display here is so blatant that it might be time for a major evaluation of this form of carbon-spewing transport. Countries could pledge to ban private jets, period. To focus on the U.S., as a prime example, the Biden administration has said it is committed to environmental justice. A private jet ban would be a great place to start. A 2020 study found that private jet trips were responsible for nearly 34 million metric tons of carbon pollution, which is more than some countries produce in an entire year. Four hours of flying on a private jet emits as much greenhouse gas pollution as the average European citizen does in a year. I'm sure it would not be popular with the well-heeled, but I bet the masses would support it. This leads us to our last conspicuous display of consumption. In an era of environmental awareness, you might not expect the rise in the number of people with the means for an appetite for a $60 million floating fortress of solitude. But believe it or not, the super yacht industry is booming, 
and the number of vessels under construction or on order worldwide has hit a new record. More than 1,200 super yachts are slated to be built, a rise of 25% from last year. I think we can all agree the super yachts are just another example of the vastly disproportionate environmental damage produced by the super rich. Of course, if you add every super yacht together, it's just a blip on the total greenhouse gas production. But it is symbolic, and the global impact of the 2,000 odd billionaires on the planet are very significant. So it's part of a pattern of overconsumption by the upper crust. Whether it's this, or private supersonic jets, or trips to space, they're just sticking a big middle finger up to the rest of society. Let's sum up what we have learned here. More money, more carbon. And, as we heard with the supersonic jets and the mega yachts, the trend line for the ultra-rich in their carbon consumption and carbon emissions is skyrocketing. We also learned that energy-intensive luxury is filled with movement. Vehicles, vehicle fuel, flying, huge boats, holidays and vacations. The most energy-intensive thing that wealthier people do is move around more in cars, ships, and planes. I have outlined what could be done to rein them in. However, the reality is they will never succumb to social pressure and passing laws to restrict their oil-guzzling ways is probably futile. What may be the saving grace is the next generation of leaders that will spearhead the bright, clean energy future we all say we want. I look for peace in the sunshine I look for peace in the sunshine I look for peace in the sunshine I feel peace with everyone In the heart of everyone Finally, we answer the question, who's going to lead us to our fossil fuel-free future? There has been a lot of discussion how the young are going to be the most impacted by climate in the future. And because they have the most to lose, they are stepping up on this issue. In polls, young people always claim to be more concerned about the environment than older generations. But they don't act like it. Here's a prime example. Greta Thunberg is the conscience of her generation, but she doesn't represent it. Greta has 13 million followers on Instagram, which is great. But Kylie Jenner has 279 million, which is 21 times more. Who is the real influencer in that generation? The model citizen or the model? The younger generation has wholeheartedly embraced Kylie and the other Kardashians and their fabulously wealthy display of affluence. She recently posted a tour of her shoe closet, which houses over 1,000 pairs. Her lifestyle is a spectacle of overconsumption and the opposite of carbon neutral. 
Millennials and Gen Xers may claim a greater awareness of environmental issues, but as is true with most of the population, by far the vast majority don't really care. It would be great if the younger generation was different than the older generations, but the sad truth is they are completely the same. Lots of talk, but at the end of the day, hopelessly seduced and addicted to overindulge on convenience, luxury, and consumption. So, if the young are not up for the task of leadership, I have another suggestion. Women. Not just young women, all women. Let me tell you why. Who do you think overall is greener, men or women? Think about it for a sec. Men or women? If you give it any consideration, it's easy. It's women, hands down. There is a distinct eco-gender gap in the disparity between the ethical choices made by men and women. The eco-gender gap is a term that reveals that men are less likely to pursue environmentally friendly behaviors than their female counterparts. Women have long surpassed men in the arena of environmental action across age groups and countries. Females tend to live an eco-friendlier lifestyle. Compared to men, by any measure, recycling, littering, using less water, not wasting food, turning off the heat when not at home, women leave a much smaller carbon footprint. Men's meaty diets lead to 40% more carbon emissions than women. Not only that, but men resist green behavior as unmanly. Things like bringing your own bags to the store or driving an economy car, not masculine, no way, no how. So, that's even more reason to have females become leaders in the 3.5% climate revolution. And not just as leaders, female protesters often lead to effective mass movements. There's a direct correlation between the success of protest movements and the participation of women. Here's a few examples. Protests are more likely to remain non-violent when women participate according to a UN report. Number two, women effectively take on many roles during protests and mass movements, from organizer to caregiver to protector. And number three, women playing visible roles in protests have become symbols of freedom and progress. The bottom line is, protests and mass movements are less likely to find success if half of the population is silent. Increasingly, women are speaking out. There have been many transformational women's marches that have changed societies for the better. Here are a few notable examples from history. The French Revolution was sparked by a woman-led demonstration in 1789. As the price of bread skyrocketed, pushing families into poverty and starvation, an estimated 7,000 women gathered in Paris, leading to nothing less than a revolution overthrowing the monarchy. In the U.S., the decades-long women's suffragette movement culminated in a massive demonstration in 1915. 
Women finally were granted the right to vote with the ratification of the 19th Amendment in 1920. In more recent times, we had the Icelandic women's strike. In 1975, women were underpaid and underrepresented in Iceland, so they organized a nationwide strike and protest to demand gender equality that brought the country to a standstill and highlighted the critical importance of women's contributions to the economy. To demonstrate their importance to society, 25,000 women gathered on the streets of Reykjavik, and 90% of the female population did not go to work, cook, clean, or take care of children. The strike led to the enactment of a gender equality law in Iceland the following year, and seeded the ground for the 1980 election of the first woman president of Iceland. Women continue to organize and take the lead in many protest movements. Just a few examples: in Spain, protesters declared a feminist emergency following a string of rapes and domestic violence attacks that resulted in the deaths of some women, which resulted in stronger laws. Women in Mexico have organized a day without us, a national strike coinciding with International Women's Day. Women were encouraged to disappear. To stay at home, away from work, out of stores, and off the streets, to highlight their vital role. In Belarus, women led protests and shattered stereotypes. Belarusian women have become the face and driving force of a movement aimed at toppling a leader known as Europe's last dictator, Alexander Luchesko. Women holding symbolic white flowers protested by the thousands in 2020. The protest was so conspicuously peaceful, many of the mass police officers were visibly embarrassed to make mass arrests of the women demonstrators. This is another advantage of having women protesters, because it often ensures the protests don't turn violent, and mothers and sisters and girls often act as human buffers between police and demonstrators. The Women's March in January 2017 was likely the largest single-day protest in the United States and the largest global women's rights protest in history, with crowds of hundreds of thousands gathering in cities across the country. An estimated three to five million American women participated, joined by at least 260 additional sister marches in countries around the globe. The Women's March heralded a new global wave of women's activism that has been sustained by the viral Me Too movement, which has reached 85 countries, that has resulted in historic numbers of women running for office worldwide. Women have good reason to take a leadership role for environmental issues. Women are increasingly being seen as more vulnerable than men to the impacts of climate change, mainly because they represent the majority of the world's poor and are proportionately more dependent on threatened natural resources. The difference between men and women can also be seen in their different roles. Worldwide, women have less access than men to resources such as land, credit. Agricultural involvement, decision-making structures, technology, training, and governmental services that would enhance their capacity to adapt to climate change. 
Women represent a majority percentage of poor communities that are highly dependent on local natural resources for their livelihood, particularly in rural areas where they shoulder the majority responsibility for household water supply and energy for cooking and heating, as well as for family food security. These disparities aren't only in the global south. In wealthier nations, like the United States, women may not be as dependent on agriculture as women in the global south are, but women still make up more than half of those living in poverty. This means higher exposure to pollutants and other forms of environmental inequality and racism. From women students, to housewives, to grandmothers, women have the most to lose. Erratic weather is going to push vulnerable communities away from their longtime homes, which will mean more internal displacement and refugees seeking shelter outside of their home countries, leading to higher instances of violence against women. Girls and young women around the world have emerged as some of the most passionate climate activists. Call it the Greta effect, where young women activists have found a sisterhood and a sense of empowerment in the climate protests, marches, and campaigns. And most importantly, nonviolent campaigns with high degrees of frontline women's participation are also likelier to elicit loyalty shifts from security forces and the population in general. Those with the power to make decisions about how much the world warms in the coming decades are mostly old and male. Those who are the angriest about the pace of climate inaction are mostly young and female. We are never going to develop meaningful climate policies if we leave people behind, especially women. In the next and final podcast episode in this series, we are going to address the practical applications of the 3.5% climate revolution. We will answer questions such as, what preparations and approaches need to be employed to be successful? What are the most effective tactics to be triumphant? What are the greatest real-world obstacles we must overcome to achieve our lofty goals? What are the four tipping points that will eventually force us to face reality? And a realistic examination of what our modern societies are truly going to have to accomplish if we have any hope of emerging from this momentous crisis of our creation. That's all on the next episode, number 64, on the green elephant in the room. A good place to start on your journey to take back the climate and your world is the Green Elephant webpage. Go to the webpage and click on a Call to Act menu to reveal hundreds of action activities for you to create our bright, fossil fuel-free future. Visit us at bit.ly slash green elephant in the room. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Green Elephant in the Room, where you will find valuable information and links to everything that was addressed on today's episode and more.